Open Patience with Amelia Rope, a podcast about business, well-being and chocolate. Well, welcome to Hope and Patience. I'm Jonathan Hart. So where is Amelia, you may be asking? Well, fear not, folks. As it's Christmas, we've decided to turn the tables and ask Amelia to be the interviewee rather than the interviewer on this podcast. Over the last year or so, Amelia has talked to a host of fascinating guests, but now it's her turn to face the music. And Amelia joins me from our virtual studio. How are you doing? Hello, Jonathan. It's so nice to have a chat with you. I still haven't met you. Can you believe that? I know. Well, we do live in strange times. And uh, are, are you feeling slightly trepidatious about this experience that's coming up over the next uh, 40 minutes or so? I am full of trepidation. I'm also very excited. I mean, it is different, isn't it, for you to be on the other side of the mic? Although I do believe that you do take part in quite a lot of podcasts anyway. I do. I like a bit of a chat. You don't say. But the thing is that when you're put on the spot, when you're put on the spot, yeah, I mean, it's good to be put on the spot. It gets me thinking. Gets the brain going. So this series is all about well-being, running a business and, of course, chocolate. It's called Hope and Patience, named after your two grandmas, Hope and Patience. Obviously, family is very important to you, Amelia. Family, well, we don't pick them. They are, we are delivered to them. Uh, I think family are really important, and especially with uh, the pandemic, family has become even more important. Why named after my grandmothers were, they were two really incredible women, very different, but really talented. And uh, Patience had a lot of drive, and she, she ran a school from her house, and she was just an amazing woman. And Hope was really warm and cosy, and she was the most phenomenal artist and cook. So I really wanted to call it after them because they are two significant women in my life. And also I think they're really important virtues because certainly from my life, I've had to have a hell of a lot of hope. And my goodness, I've been taught patience and I'm still learning patience. But yeah, I mean, family is important and the DNA of my family, they were entrepreneurs, certainly on Hope's side, they're ransom lawnmowers, can you believe it? And, uh, and other relations designed plows and created the Suffolk horse. And, you know, so it's all, so family is important, the physical presence, but also your past, the sort of people behind you. Yes, I mean, it's a wonderful tribute to both of your grandmother's hope and patience. It really is. Um, a podcast series about running a business and well-being. It is a perfect combination, really, in these strange times that we live. What inspired you to create the series? Uh, it's a really good question. I love pe hearing people's stories and I've always been fascinated with founders in particular because we are a sort of unique breed of person and I think it, it comes from having worked in, with a very sort of corporate background to come into setting up my own business. I realised how everybody was, was so different. So it's really about exploring founder stories and understanding what makes them tick hearing their backstories, but also how they cope in difficult situations. I know that when I was running my chocolate business, I struggled at times. I thought, oh, wow, it's just me. But it's really reassuring when you hear other people who have the same problems and the same challenges through the business cycles. Um, so it, it's founder stories. I'm curious. I'm just curious about people, really. And also, the I wanted to sort of inspire other founders or anyone who's thinking about starting up or people who are just curious. You can tell I like the word curious because I've just used that twice. <laughs> um, 
And the well-being side is because my past life, uh, previous chapter, I was um, quite overweight and I really, through trying to lose weight, I got into complementary therapy also to sort out and understand life too. And um, well-being, I think, is really important. I I studied herbal medicine, nutrition and uh, aromatherapy, but also because my own health was compromised through running my business and forgetting about looking after myself and So that's why it's really crucial as founders, we have to remember to fit that self-care in. We'll talk more about well-being a bit later on in the podcast, Amelia. But I first wanted to ask you, who were your inspirations growing up? My inspirations growing up? I mean, I, I think that it was just people who came on my path as I was growing up. I can't put any sort of particular figure as as an example of an inspiration. Uh, it was really through just finding my path and realising what I didn't want uh, that inspired me to, to push forward. Um, there were key players in my journey uh, who inspired me as I went along. Uh, but that was more when I was involved in my, or just before the chocolate business. So people who supported you rather than inspired you? Uh, yes, I mean, my friends and my family are incredible supports uh, and actually people who I met along the way who just came into, I see um, it is a sort of circle and what I found is that people come in on your circle and then they go. So they come in for a reason, you learn from them and then they move on to their next. It's it's very rare. I mean, my friends obviously have seen me through out, but people have just come along just as I've needed them and then they've drifted off when I don't need them so much. In our conversations that we've had off air, Amelia, it is fair to say that you've had a, a tricky time uh, growing up. School and adolescent years were not easy. You've uh, mentioned issues about weight and stuff like that. That is not unusual, of course. But how did that period of your life make you the person you are now? Yeah, I mean, school, that that was a challenge. Growing up was a challenge. I, I mean, it's really tough. You have to try and understand yourself. And, you know, when you look back on it, you think, oh, I would have done this, that and the other. But actually, when you're growing up, you don't see that. I was always someone who I wanted to be top of the class. I wanted to be the best. Not, I mean, I have a competitive spirit, but it wasn't really the competitive spirit. It was just I wanted to achieve something and I wanted my dad to say, well done. And I could never do it. I mean, I think I cut the grade as getting a third in an art exam, but it really frustrated me. And so maybe that pushes me on to be a high achiever. During that period of time, and I think we're a, we're a similar kind of age. We come from a similar uh, era I think there are a lot of people who were and who are very successful who didn't do that well at school. In fact, most schools weren't very good in the 70s and the 80s, let's say. People had to find their own way. And I think a lot of the people I speak to, my peers, my generation, similar to yours, they just made their own track and eventually they became successful in spite of the school education system and so on. Yes, I mean, I think the schooling was quite basic. I was lucky, I went to a good school, but I was there from the age of something like three and a half to 15 and the teachers were absolutely fed up with me and I was outside the headmistress's door a lot because I just was my own little spirit. But I, where the school did lack was that I didn't have any self-belief in myself and that came later on and I think that was, that was quite instrumental 
in it once I found my self-belief mm. primarily through a um, life coach and then master chef and all that side of things that's what gave me confidence I didn't really have confidence at school I also was quite chubby and I remember the horror story of in the sixth form you're allowed to wear a special skirt to show that you're in the sixth form and I couldn't fit into that special skirt and it really devastated me and I had to get my own skirt and there were a couple of us in that situation and it, you sort of had that stigma hanging around your head that you couldn't even get into a school skirt. So maybe that was one of my drivers in finding out how to lose weight. It's very much about confidence, as, as you said before. Um, sometimes you just need to find out what you're good at or maybe be inspired by one person, one teacher who actually turns the corner for you because suddenly you think, you know what, I can do that. Yeah, and I only had one teacher who said to me, Mrs. Birch, I remember her clearly, she said to me, it's such a shame that you've stayed on at this school as long as you have because nobody's seen your full potential. Well, there you go. And I thought, absolutely spot on. But saying that, I was really lucky to go to school. And one of my greatest, greatest mates, who really is sort of an adopted sister, I met at the school. Um, but it just, yeah, I, I wasn't really any good at much, apart from cooking. Well, there you go. That's a very neat segue. And needlework. Already for my stockbroker husband, I was expected to meet in my 20s. Ah, yes, the stockbroker husband. The dream. Um, let, let's talk about... My dad's dream. <laughs> let's talk about cooking. And you mentioned MasterChef briefly earlier on. You appeared on the show, goodness me, way back in 2006. Did that change your life? Well, actually, Jonathan, I appeared on it twice. I was on it in 2006 and 2007, but in 2006, I basically had split up actually from one of our guests, Johnny Bilby, and he dumped me and I had a real Bridget Jones moment for quite some time. And I watched Thomasina Myers win MasterChef and I thought, hey-ho, I'll just give that a pop. I was practice manager at the time and I got my first proper job that my father was so, I talk about my father a lot, but he is quite an influence in the sort of career side. And, you know, he was so pleased. I, was, I had a proper job. I was a practice manager. And actually, I really loved it because I'm fascinated by health. Um, anyway, basically, I applied to go on MasterChef because I thought, yeah, I'd need some distraction. And actually, the one question that I remember that they asked on this form, and I hate filling in forms, was um, what, did you, what have you achieved most in life? So I put survive it. Good answer. I've done a lot. I've broken a few bones and whatever. I've lived it to the full. Anyway, so um, MasterChef was great. I went part time in my job to practice these dishes. I scuttled along and I arrived and I just thought, oh my goodness, everybody is either wanting to be a, a TV star or they actually really know how to cook. And I thought you had to make up your recipes. And so I created these recipes that actually looked like cat sick when I went to cook oh, it. Dear. And I had loads of tears and uh, the cameraman, Jake, who's very attractive, <laughs> zoomed in on the tears, which I told him not to do. And anyway, John Tarot came backstage and he said to me, what you have in your head is unique. You've got to go and do something with it. But I didn't. I went back to my job as a practice manager because ultimately I needed a salary. And... Um, so I, that's what I did. And then they asked me to go back on in 2007, which they used to do. They used to ask people. I think they thought, because I had so many cool ideas in my head, hmm. that um, I would have gone away, cooked like crazy, and therefore go back a lot. And I explored a lot, and it took me on this chocolate course, which, which basically led me into the world of chocolate. But I went back on the show and unfortunately I didn't excel. I always won the restaurant rounds on the show because I loved that 
it's a bit like a theatre show, but I love that teamwork and the excitement and the, I mean the pressure of anyone on MasterChef and and it was very different to what it is now. It was much e- when I say easier. I have I haven't experienced that amount of intense pressure in anything else at all. Uh, John and Greg are great and the team and and everything else. It was it was an incredible experience and to go back home was just fantastic and it and it made me really question what I wanted to do and John Tarod's words of you know you've got something unique just made me think you know what god damn it i've got to do something i've can't just fester i've got to just see what is inside me and and so yes it did it it really changed me and it that and a master chef um that and a master chef that and, and a life coach called mary and in that day nobody really went to life coaches they thought you were a bit odd but i went she was brilliant she helped me believe in myself i then wrote a letter to william sitwell um he was then the food editor of uh, food illustrated and i went to see him wanting to get in journalism and i took some chocolates that i'd made using chocolate mint herbs from my mum's garden and he said you're the next juliette binosh and the thing is with me is that one of the things that was lacking was that i didn't have confidence in myself but also nobody really encouraged me i was still waiting for well done do you see what i mean so it, when when all these people came into my life of just that's it and I was like wow maybe I could do something you know it just gave me a bit more confidence and and so he was very key William um Slipwell I don't think he realized what he was opening up inside me but he opened up this chocolate journey that I then found that I went on and um met the most incredible people so Amelia MasterChef leads on to you starting your own chocolate business and uh I'm delighted to say in a moment I'm going to eat some of the famous chocolate which you kindly sent to me. Special delivery. Um, I'm looking forward to that. When did you decide you were going to start this business? So am I actually because I've given up milk chocolate for the week and so I am desperate. But anyway, um, so from MasterChef I then went to... um, Yeah, as I was saying, I went to Mary, the life coach, and then I wrote to William Sitwell. And then from that, um, he suddenly got me in on the Market Kitchen, which was the TV show with Tana Ramsey, Gordon Ramsay's wife, coating and dipping truffles. And they said to me, what's your company called? And I thought, oh my God, I don't have a company. So I made up the name Bespoke Truffles. Anyway, I started making these truffles. And though I say it myself, they were absolutely mind-blowing. And the thing is that, with with the issues with my weight, how ironical that you've had problems with your weight throughout your life and all of a sudden you're working in the world of chocolate. So one of the drivers in my chocolate business was that I wanted to create products that I didn't feel guilty about eating and I knew that were really, really good quality ingredients. And so on my truffles, I, I played around and I cut out things like butter and I put honey in and, and Along the line, it turned out that the honey worked out to extend its shelf life. I then went away and I was creating these amazing truffles and I did it just for, I was part-time my job, so I was just doing it on the side. And then a key turning point was I had this vision and literally it was a vision. In front of me was a rose petal with dark chocolate at the bottom and gold leaf. And I took three months to find A, rose petals that you could eat, so I needed to get organic ones and working out how to crystallize them and tempering the chocolate and dipping them in it so it didn't bloom because anyone who knows about chocolate will know that the moisture of the rose petal can throw the tempering out. And anyway, I did it. And then I played with pansies and mint leaves and a friend of mine said, um, I'm gonna mention her, Rachel, uh, Rach. She said to me, drop it off at 
you know, the press and you might get somewhere in six months. So I took the day off work. I loaded my car up. It was back in the days where marketing was much easier because you just dropped product off. And if your product was good and if the journalist wanted something new to write about, you got a mention. So I loaded my car up. Everybody got the wrong thing. But the point is that Stella magazine mentioned these petals. And from there, it took off. I mean, it was crazy. I had no business, no packaging, no money, no idea of what the hell I was doing. I don't, you know, it... But it just went and I Dragon's Den pursued me to go on the show, which I didn't do. My brother said, don't go on that because you'll cry. And I think he was probably right. Uh, and um, I was, they were Paul O'Grady's show and then Vanessa Feltz and they were in every magazine. And then the royal families from the Middle East sent private jets over to collect them. I mean, it was just mind blowing. So then I got my kitchen and uh, in Borough and I, I set up my business, but I set up a business without a product that was scalable or really it had marketability but it the shelf life it was fragile I mean it was it was an eye-opener and it took me to some really dark places but it also took me to some real high places too and some people who really supported you during this time as opposed to when you were younger you mentioned uh, William and Mary and other people uh, there were quite there were quite a lot of people uh, along the way who did help you well, yeah, I mean, the key players in this, so um, William Sitwell uh, was was massive, Mary before William Sitwell. And then um, when I was getting in quite a sticky position, because I wasn't selling and I couldn't make enough of these petals. And, and how can you sell them to places when you don't have the money for packaging and stuff? And my brother and my family were amazing and they put money in, but the money soon ran out. So um, the next pivotal person that I met was this guy. Um, I called him my chocolate diamond geezer, a guy called Pat Reeves. And it just shows the power of chat and, and finding your feet because I was I had bailiffs at my door and I actually was, dare I say it on the show, shitting bricks. I, I didn't know what to do and I felt really low and my mental health was pretty precarious because I felt hopeless and helpless. I didn't know where to turn. And my parents understandably said, listen, we're not helping you anymore. So... I, I, it was really tough and, and it, but it taught me a lot. It taught me, uh, what it's like to really live with, with pretty much zero. And I remember when I used to go to Sainsbury's, I'd buy whatever was reduced and I ended up living off bean sprouts, tomato ketchup and parsley and mustard. Now that will sound horrendous to the majority of people, but actually it's filling and it's pretty nutritious and it's cheap. And that was my sort of staple. But I was rescued by, back to the Diamond Geezer, getting a job working for um, a curtain company down the road from where I was living. And Pat used to drop in. And I didn't really know much about him. I just knew that he ran a sofa company and he'd set up deliverance. But I didn't know the ins and outs. Anyway, one day he said to me, come and work for me. And so I did. I worked for him one day a week. Uh, looking after him at home so a load of his admin he was a he was a very cool guy he was a bachelor and he had a lot of sort of organization so I helped with that and I learned so much because he was a really really successful entrepreneur and he was the business partner to our first guest on the show Rowan Blacker of Pookie Lighting and he just he was saying to me just get a chocolate bar on the go and I was like no I'm not interested I used to this was one of my faults I used to say no to everything and everyone but actually what I really wanted to say was yes so Pat said fine I'll put 60 grand in this business we're going to get a team making we're going to get this up and running and what should I go and say no 
I just thought, oh my God, why have I said that? Anyway, further down the line, he just put a commission in for a thousand bars because he knew I wouldn't say no to an order. And this is really important because the bars turned my business around. And so he ordered a thousand. He paid me with a thousand. I hand filed everyone. I hand wrapped them, signed them. I had six weeks notice at the busiest time of year to find someone to make them, to help get the packaging up and running and to get the recipe going. But I did it. And um, I worked day and night to fill these frigging bars. Anyway, I then introduced a milk bar. William Sitwell introduced me to um, Ewan Venters at Selfridges. Or he just said, why don't you send a couple to Ewan? I sent them to Ewan, who was really impressed, and they launched in Selfridges. And it was just a, it was an amazing moment. And, and Pat continued to be very important to me as a mentor and a good friend. And the sad thing was that he, um, he passed away. Uh, which still makes my jaw tremble because he was just very, very important in the business. But um, he died, and uh, so, but, but that's that's he was he was very key. And then other people have come along since him, but probably not as prominent as him uh, as a mentor. But he would he would challenge me, and that's always good to be challenged. We've talked about the chocolate and the chocolate bars enough already, Amelia. Let's start eating. What do you think? Yeah, golly. And you sent Come me on, this beautiful in. packaging. The one you've sent me is Italian lemon and sea salt. It's a milk chocolate. I have to say that the packaging is beautiful. It says business, well-being, chocolate. I'm going to just take it out. I'm already tucking in. Yeah. Oh, so the thing is, so why I had to create this yeah. thing not this thing, this bar for hope and patience yeah. is that I really miss my flavors. Mm. I shouldn't say it. But they won awards. They blew people away. Right. But most importantly, they blew my palate away. And this one was the first sea salt combination. I then went on to do lime and sea salt, hazelnut and sea salt. Um, can't remember. I think oh, honeycomb and sea salt. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm starting to eat. Okay. Okay. Eat. Anyway, mm. the point is that these bars are not for sale. You have to win them. So if you want to taste the chocolate that we're tasting then please do subscribe to the newsletter or check out competitions on social media because they're up for grabs. And That's absolutely delicious, This one won gold. Delicious. Thank you. It's very subtle. I mean, the lemon and the sea salt, it's not too strong. So it sort of lingers. And I have to say, it's absolutely gorgeous. Mm. I love it. Very nice. Mm. I'm going to finish that in a minute. Um, we do have to continue. Excuse me while I try and get this down me um let's go back to running a business which as we all know uh certainly requires an immense amount of perseverance so what gives you the courage to keep going under those circumstances uh i think it is uh it's sort of drive i mean i there were times where I just thought I don't want to get out of bed, but I had to get out of bed because I had to make money. I had to pay my bills. Um, and also there's a thing with the business is that I really believed in my chocolate business and I still believe that it would have gone far if I'd had a bit of luck and if I'd got the right investment behind me at the right time. So it's something where you just want to see, can you, you know, can you land that deal? Can you supply that person? And and, you know, the names that I secured when I supplied, I supplied my chocolate, when I made my chocolate were Selfridges, Liberties, Fortnum's, 
Harrods, Harvey Nichols, the Firmdale Hotel Group, you know, I mean, amazing places. And I exported, I exported to Japan, Takashimaya. Um, so, you know, it's something where I know, I know what I was holding. I was getting approaches for TV programs, but I had to say no because I didn't hold my, have my own production unit. You know, I just got the approaches, but I couldn't always meet them. And so it is belief. And I am, a, I suppose I'm a risk taker. I am much more measured in my risks now. But I, you, you just want to, you just want to turn it around. You want to flip it. You, you're constantly after that deal. And Angus Thurwell talks about patience, saying, do entrepreneurs have patience? And I think he's probably right. It's my middle name. It was my grandmother's name, as you know. But there's this thing you've just got to get on. And, and so it's courage, but it's also just who you are. It's in my bloodstream. It's, there's something that, you know, even stopping my chocolate business and moving into podcasts, I could have just gone to get a, a job. And, and, but, but I'm not, because that's not who I am. I'm, I like an adventure. I like exploring. I love travel and it's traveling within a business. You still travel. I'm not talking about physical traveling. I'm just talking about the journey with the business. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's sort of who I am. We're, all our family are tough cookies. My brother, my dad, my mum, you know, grandparents. We came from hardy stock. And it's something where we just don't give up. And there was one instance where um, I was a massage therapist at the time. And I was cycling to look after a goddaughter. And I somersaulted over the handlebars of the bike. I broke both my arms. And instead of just parking up there, I locked the bike to the railings. I walked back carrying two shopping bags. And I, my flatmate was in the flat and she said, I, I'm going to take you to the doctor. I said, no, 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 I'm fine. I mean, my God, I've broken the, my left elbow and my right wrist. I was far from fine. But the point is that you just keep on going. And, and so that's, that's, that's who I am. That's my DNA. And how do you think the landscape has changed being a female entrepreneur from when you first started? I mean, in, in ways it's changed massively and in other ways it hasn't changed much. Uh, when I set up, there were very few female entrepreneurs. There were very few women on their own. And I, I think that's an important thing to say is that um, I didn't have a business partner and I didn't have a partner. And so you really are a sole agent. And some people used to say, oh, well, it's because you can't delegate and you can't do this. It's just not. It's just that the right people didn't appear at that time. But um, it's it was really difficult to fundraise. And I had got Selfridges who wanted to place an order. And yet I couldn't borrow any money from the bank. And my dad said, look, I'll guarantee the overdraft facility. And they still said no. And so I then lobbied my local MP and then I lobbied and I had a meeting with Vince Cable because it really frustrates me when you're not given a chance. And in life, everybody, whoever you are, deserves an opportunity because everybody, whoever you are, has has something inside them to give and to achieve something great. So it was that that really annoyed me. And eventually I got the funding. Um, there weren't many people, there wasn't, you know, now there's a social media, there's communities that set up, there's a, so much information for free. I didn't really have many people to talk to. It was quite an isolated experience at the time. 
Um, and so there were, the, it was, but it was easier to get PR. I mean, I, I had a really an amazing time with PR because, because of my story and because of being a woman on my own, stuff like that. It was very unusual for a woman to call their business after themselves. There was Joe Malone and Anya Heimarch, but certainly in my industry, there wasn't. But the, where I'm frustrated is that there is still inequality when it comes to fundraising. Women and also the BAME communities are forgotten. And it just annoys me because when I was out fundraising, men would dismiss me. You know, you're a woman. And also you'd have other people who are made, making moves on you. You just feel, for heaven's sake, I'm not here for you to take a pop at me. I'm here because I, I run a business. I'm a businesswoman and I want to fundraise and move on. I was bullied by people. Yeah, one would hope that things have changed over the last few years compared with when you're talking about I think a lot yeah. because, I mean, they're, they're, thank God for the Me Too instant uh, wording. But, I mean, I know I, mine weren't Me Too instances. But, yeah, I think now it's exciting. There are many more there and, and they've got a lot more support and, and bring it on, basically. So any female entrepreneurs, in fact, anybody really, listening to this podcast right now or would-be uh, entrepreneurs, uh, they may have been in lockdown over the last few months contemplating what to do with their lives maybe they're thinking about a new idea for a business what would your advice be so i would advise them to just daydream just allow your brain space and time and allow thoughts in and jot them down and learn and look and listen to people and get online and explore courses and just allow yourself to wander because the thing is that you've got to you've got to feel really strongly about whatever you're going to do because it's going to take up your life and it's going to take up huge chunks of it for a long time and it's going to take up a load of money and a load of your you know just everything so you've got to have that drive but you've got to have that passion about what you're going to do so and then when you've got yourself sorted plan okay i i didn't do a business plan in my early days i fell into my business by mistake in ways but you know the point is that just get a plan work the numbers out because you don't want to have the pressure of the numbers in the early stages and then take that leap because the people you meet the places you go to what you learn about yourself is something that money cannot buy and although i've i've hit rock bottom at times i have absolutely not one ounce of regret because ultimately i have lived my life to the fullest and I have experienced nooks and crannies that I'm really glad I experienced because I learned from them. In business, you do learn more from your mistakes than you do from your successes. What lessons have you learned? What mistakes did you make? And uh, <laughs> I made quite a few. loads. Oh, tell of us mistakes. about the successes too. <laughs> uh, what, what has been the most okay. rewarding so, thing? So the successes has been, you know. Be, I had no idea that I had something like this inside me. I mean, none. It blew me away, like the recipe creations and, and, and winning awards. You know, I won awards from the Academy of Chocolate. I won Great Taste Awards. Um, I met people that I never thought I'd get to meet. Um, so, and, you know, to supply people like Kit Kemp, the Firmdale Hotel Group. I mean, my goodness, was I honoured. And, and all the the stores I'd wanted to supply, you know, it, it was just incredible. Um, and and to go to Japan, and I met a very special friend in, in Japan who was also on the same trip, you know, it's just incredible. So they're the sort of successes. Um, I didn't get the financial success that I wanted, and, and that 
always frustrated me because people would say, what's your turnover? And you go, and they dismiss you. And I, I, I wanted, it wasn't for the money, okay? I'm not materialistic, but I wanted to be able to say, my business is turning over 5 million and I'm selling out to Charbonneau & Walker. I'm selling out to Hotel Chocolat. You know, that to me would have been the real success. Um, but the mistakes I made were from naivety, really, from not doing enough due diligence, from assuming things, assuming that people were going to do what they said they were going to do. Um, my major challenges were production because I, could ne- I started off with my rose petals and stuff um, doing my own production. Actually, just for a quick interim moment there, um, my bi- I had this real thing for Sting, okay, and from the police. And um, I, I had this order to do violas, uh, violas dipped in violas, a musical instrument actually, violas dipped in chocolate. And I dropped them off at this address and Trudy Styler opened the door. I mean, okay, it wasn't Sting, but I just thought, wow, I'm supplying people like this. You know, I'm not qualified at all. Um, But yeah, so mistakes, production, because of the the bars, they were made by other people. They knit my recipes, some of them, others were were good. I was never hands-on with it. And um, so I, I did make mistakes. I moved all my chocolate production to someone who remained nameless, but they were supposed to make 6,000 bars. And one of my amazing clients was Berry Brothers, the very old wine merchants. And I had to supply them dead on the nail. And this woman just said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. And that really let me down. And I then had to think very fast. And I got another person to make my production within two weeks because of the the part of this thing is to build relationships. And although I had no money, I paid people on time. And I all, always appreciated every ounce of what they did. So I was quite nimble. Um, but, you know, I, I did make mistakes. Somebody nicked my IP. Again, they will remain nameless. They copied my old packaging with craft paper and foil down to the measurement and the weight of the bar. And they undercut me. And I was sort of naive because it was at the time when Pat had died and then another great friend of mine dropped down dead the day before Pat's memorial. I mean, it was just chaos. And people were sort of saying, do you know that this person is just copying you? And I ignored it. And that was a mistake because I should have... St- trod on it very quickly because uh, it, it did take a big chunk of my market out mm. um i want to ask you about well-being we we like to focus on well-being in this series amelia how have you changed from that uh, angsty teenager we talked about earlier on is is there a bit of that still lurking uh, I think everybody has a bit of insecurity in them and I think that sort of drives you on and and that is that's one of the reasons why you you well I push myself on I mean I'm in the podcast industry now I don't know anything about podcasts you know I'm learning the whole time Um, and there was always a bit of apprehension of am I going to do it right am I not and I'm being the high achiever again with a really strong inner critic as you guys will know I might interview someone and I'll go ah and then when I listen to it back I think that's absolutely fine what the hell was the issue with me but um it was so I think yeah it helps you grow and I think that it's um I'm a, I'm quite a private person so I struggle with that sometimes with social media doing sort of selfies and videos I I am challenged with because uh, I'm actually an introvert with a flash of an extrovert um and uh yeah so Yes, possibly there is a bit of it lurking, but I feel I've pretty much smoothed a lot of the edges, thank heavens for myself and my parents. They had quite a tough deal. 
Uh, yeah, I'm I, with your health. Did you have a bit of a wake up call? I mean, something that made you realize you really have to change things health wise. Yeah, so I mean, I um, my major uh, turning point, certainly with my chocolate business was when um, one I, I went to to the um, as a, a show in Cologne, the ISM big sweet chocolate thing and I came back and my left ankle was swollen and I thought oh crikey I can't have a DVD or something anyway it just got more and more painful and then um, I went to the doctor and they said we think it's gout and I said I really don't think it is then I had to then they thought it was broken anyway then my left ankle uh, my right ankle started swelling too and I could barely walk and it was at the time where I'd just taken investment on board and then something happened to my knees, so I couldn't actually kneel either. And I could barely stand. The pain was mind-blowing. It took me 20 minutes to mobilise, to get out of bed. And I had, like, these red wheels up between my um, ankles and my shins, uh, which it was just, it was horrendous. But I never, ever sort of stopped. I had to keep on going for the sake of the business. And... Um, so I I did, and, and I was diagnosed by a professor um, with this thing called Swerdron syndrome, which is an autoimmune thing, and he said to me, you need to go on steroids. And it's, it, what it is, is it's a mix of sarcoidosis, um, arthritis, and erythemaosis or something. Anyway, you can Google it, but it's one hell of a wake-up call. And it scared me. So I just thought, you know, he said steroids. And, and because of my thing with I try and take as minimal medication as possible, uh, I just thought, no, 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 I need to change my life. And I slept a lot and I reassessed my business. I still work really hard. But when I realized that this, the investment side of it and everything was not going to go any further, I just thought, you know what? We have one life and I'm sure as heck going to look after myself. Um, it, it just really, really scared me, Jonathan, that it could next time it would be more serious. And alongside that, I had chest pains that um, went down my left arm. And I, I rang my doctor up and she said, you're going to have to go to A&E. I said, I'm not because I'm not going to have a heart attack. I just know it. Anyway, I did. And they said, you've got to take the weekend off. And I couldn't and uh, because of the pressures of the business. Uh, so that that was a real turning point, and that's why in the podcast the well-being side is crucial in in each interview. Because even if there's some founders who don't do as much well-being as perhaps they should, it makes them think about it. But it also, it's just a learning for for everybody listening. We you've got to do it. It's really important. Absolutely. You always ask your guests a few uh, quick-fire questions. So I think it's only fair that I do the same to you. So here we go. You ready? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Short answers, please. Uh, <laughs> what makes <laughs> that's always a challenge for me. <laughs> what makes you happy? Chat, friends, travel. Chat, friends, travel. Doing something spirited. Okay, not doing very well with the travel at the moment, are we? But never mind. No, I am so stuck. Crazy. Actually, one of the just just very quickly, I've remembered one of my biggest rewards that was um, successes with the business was uh, and Andrew Baker, who was an absolute honey, and I should have mentioned him before. He was a, a star. He he works Telegraph. Um, I got two commissions from him to write, and one was to go to Colombia, which was just phenomenal. And uh, then I got one to go to Mauritius and my to cover a story out there. And I sourced, I sourced a guy growing cocoa who the people on the island didn't even know existed. It was, he was an incredible guy, very special guy. But yeah, travel makes me happy. Okay. Tell us when you've needed hope and patience the most. 
Okay, so this is a non-business answer. Uh, I am a, bus a volunteer business mentor for an incredible charity called Find Cell Work, where they support uh, prisoners and ex-prisoners, uh, primarily through stitching. And I had my first mentee, who's a very special woman, uh, about 18 months ago. And um, my thing was to help her get confident and to find a job and, and move back into the world and move on into a new chapter. And she was the most inspirational woman in the way that she got so many knocks back about when she went to apply for jobs, but she kept on going. A couple more questions for you. What has been your most rewarding experience? Uh, my most rewarding experience, gosh. I think there's so many things. I think really, you know, the rewarding thing was coming out of chocolate, which took me a long time. I mean, I haven't been married, but it was like a marriage, a relationship, a sort of divorce or whatever, um, was meeting a, 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 my friend, catching up with a friend, and for him to be my investor and back me in, in creating hope and patience. That has been just gold dust, because without um, Richard, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. And that has been so, so that has been as if I've been given a huge present, basically. Now I've just got to work my backside off. Yeah. <laughs> and what would you change in your life, Amelia, if you could? I think that's a question where, you know, we, there can be, life can be full of regrets or not. And I've, I've always spun my life or now I spin my life in a very positive way so i don't think you know okay there's it's probably the same with everybody you'd always want one more conversation with someone before they go up above um i possibly a university i had a big hang up that um i was i was brought up in a um in a family where women didn't really work they sort of married and that was their work and they became sort of owned I suppose in a way financially which was one of my drivers I didn't want to be financially owned um university because I th I really had wanted a career but I don't know uh, yeah I, I I don't I think it's best to just look forward um you always ask your guests to recommend a book or a piece of music or perhaps a film or tv series so what's on your list at the moment well, the song that I listened to to pet me up for this interview is The Proclaimers. You know, the Scottish twins. I think they're Craig and Charlie. I'm going to be 500 miles. I love that. It gives me real vavavum. Don't ask me why, but it just does. That is the song of the moment. The, the programme that I watched recently was on BBC and it was called Life and it was four people in one living in one building and all the stories around it. I think because I've rented for so many years and I've sort of lived with so many people in, in different buildings, uh, that really intrigued me. I just hope they do another, another I saw one. that. Did you watch yes, that? Yes, I did. Uh, some of it was very good. Some of it was a bit odd. But um, yeah, I, I kind of... I watched it from the beginning to the end, so it must have been quite good. Um... We're, we're almost out of time, and, and this is the last uh, Hope and Patience podcast of 2020. It has been a bit of a strange, odd year, to say the least. What are your hopes for 2021? I really hope that we maintain this thing of being together. I think that the pandemic has stripped so many livelihoods and it is a horror story, especially, you know, in the hospitality sector, the travel sector. It's, it, it makes me feel very sad that these 
founders have worked so hard and their companies have just been ripped from them really not through fault of their own so i hope that we can all support each other that this unity that seems to be a thread through main you know sort of stays and the other thing is that this consumerism this ridiculous obsession with spend 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 hopefully that's being curbed and people will will just I think we're going to treasure the moments that we can spend with family and friends and travel. Problem is that we need people to spend money because that's why people can work in the travel and tourism industry. That's why they work in hospitality. Take that away yeah, I, and what are those people going to do? No, I do see that on spending, but there's some things where you, I don't know, as a child, we only needed four, let's say four jumpers and four pairs of shoes, whatever it is. Three television channels, four jumpers. Yeah, you know, it's, but it's, it's having chips. too much. Yeah. Potentially it's having excess, so buying less of, but better quality. I agree, we, we need to keep spending. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm going to be spending on travel or whatever it is. But I just think that it has gone slightly lopsided and crazy. Yes. It's been great talking to you, Amelia. It really has. We wish you and, of course, all the Hope and Patience listeners a very happy Christmas and a, hopefully a very good New Year. Do you have a quick message for the Hope and Patience audience? I do. I want to say a huge thank you for supporting me and listening to the show. It means so much. And I love it when you just ping little messages on social media or email. It, it really makes me smile and I love it. So keep that going. And to wish you all a really, really happy Christmas, wherever you are. If you're on your own this Christmas, so am I. But you know what? We've got this. Let's hope 2021 really rocks because we can only move forward out of this. We certainly can't go back. So, yes, happy, happy Christmas. Yep, happy Christmas, everybody, and happy Christmas to you, Amelia. I hope you have a good one. Thank you, Jonathan, and you too. Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope. Join the conversation at hopeandpatience.co.uk. Find Amelia on Facebook at Hope and Patience or on Twitter and Instagram at Amelia underscore Rope.